Ultra. And welcome to the protagonist podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Frem and Eddie from the first two chapters of A Contract with God and Other Tenement Stories by Will Eisner. Joining me for the discussion is returning guest Chris Mav Maverick. Welcome back, Mav. Hey, how's it going? Oh, really good. Very glad to have you on, and thank you for having me on your podcast very recently. Yes, you were on, as we record, you were on our most recent episode, but that's no longer true because of podcast time travel when people are listening to this. So I don't know, listen to a, a month or two ago and, and Joe is there. <laughs> or, I, I mean, unless he's come on since then, because again, podcast time travel, who knows? Right? Uh, and that's over on the Vox podcast. Uh, yes, yes. Well, Mav, it's always a pleasure to have you on. And today we're having you on to talk about what is maybe the first graphic novel that everyone like chronologically agrees is in the canon of graphic novels that you have to talk about. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it is the first thing it, it's the, it's the answer to the trivia question. What is the first graphic novel? Now, whether it's really the first graphic novel or not, there's some debate, but it is when, when, when that question appears in pub trivia or like on a jeopardy or something, you can feel pretty good about saying a contract with God and other tenement stories. Um, one might question how novel it is because it is um, more of an anthology and therefore breaks the, the the one thing that would make it a novel is sort of broken by it. So, you know, who knows? Yeah. It's like, do you count Winesburg, Ohio as a novel? Do you teach that in a novel course or do you teach that in a short I, stories I, course? I, I have taught it. I mean, I would teach it in a novel course. I have. And yet, no, it's not a novel. It's a collection of short stories. <laughs> Um, a Contract with God is a 1978 graphic novel by Will Eisner. It has four chapters. We're discussing chapter one, A Contract with God, and chapter two, The Street Singer. Eisner uses a monochromatic caricatured cartooning style that often feels at odds with the serious dramatic adult slice of life stories that are riddled with violence, hopelessness, loss, and despair that we get in this. And that disconnect or that, or that uh, I, think, I think, tension that uh, a reader feels is extremely deliberate. It's what you're supposed to be kind of exploring uh, in this piece. And Eisner is like often he's going to be one of the first names when people talk about who are the masters of the comic book form. Uh, and so <laughs> when you're like, oh, I don't know if this style Oscar is named fits <laughs> with that. It's like, well, do a little work to figure out why, <laughs> if that's what you're feeling. <laughs> the, the Oscars of comics are named after him. That's how important he is. The Oscars of comics are called the Eisners and he, he is the Eisner in the Eisner. Award. Yeah. And his career spans before the golden age of comics to 2005 is when his, his last work was published. Right. And that, and, and only because, you know, he was dying soon after that. So. Yeah. I mean, he is a legend uh, in this. Um, and as someone who, uh, like for me, when I first came to this, I think I came to references of it in, uh, in comic book media when I started to read comic books. Now, it, when I was reading in the nineties, like a lot of the way I became informed about, comics would be through things like wizard magazine because there was no like <laughs> wikipedia to go look stuff up on or websites mm -hmm. and but even like wizard which was as mainstream comic book coverage as you could get in terms of like marvel mm -hmm. dc image I, I i still remember reading references to a contract with god in there um mm -hmm. and that's like the stature of this book is that anyone who's talking about comic books kind of has to address a contract with god at some point or you sound like you don't really know what you're talking about 
it's one of those books. So I, I've often said this. We said this. Uh, you were on my show once when we were talking about. I think you were on that episode where we were talking about the no, the graphic novels that you would mm -hmm. put, the comic books that you would put if you were teaching an intro to comics class. And I just set a base rule that we were going to exclude. Um, there are five comics that everyone teaches, um, which are A Contract with God, uh, Watchmen, uh, Dark Knight, um, uh, the um, Mouse. Um, Mouse, no, but that's, yeah, Mouse is the easy one. Mouse, Persepolis, and um, the 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 one that takes it, fun home. Oh, yeah, it's like the, mm -hmm. the cemetery one, the funeral. One. So, like you're, you know, every class has those like six books in it. You've got to pick five, <laughs> <laughs> and, and like if you're doing intro to graphic novel, maybe four. But if you're, it, but like if you're excluding contract with God, you're doing it for a reason, and you have like it's not just. You're you're making a conscious choice to exclude contract for contract with God. No one would ever forget it. It's just like, yeah. a, oh, I don't want to teach this because because it's the one where where Watchmen, you feel like all you feel like a significant portion of the regular kids who are going to take your comic book class have probably read Watchmen. A lot of them probably read Mouse in like sixth grade or maybe 12th grade or maybe freshman year of college. Right. Mm -hmm. Like Mouse comes up a lot. So those are the ones that people know. And Persepolis comes up a lot. And lately Fun Home comes up a lot. But but contract with God, that's the one that you read because you're taking a comics class. It, it, it very much feels like this is the this is the form. This is the, the this is the starting point. And again, not really the first graphic novel. It depends on who you ask. Uh, there are a few others that predate it. It's the first thing that like was popularly called a graphic novel. That's how it was sold on. Book yeah, Show. that's what was on its cover. And that was, a, mm -hmm. you know, an effort to. Uh, like, like in recognition that the term comic book had become so associated culturally mm -hmm. with kind of juvenile disposable entertainment, graphic novel was meant mm -hmm. to elevate it. It's become <laughs> at times problematic. Like, uh, have, have you read Jerry Craft's uh, New Kid? Um, no. It's, it's about a like a, it's a middle grade graphic novel about uh, a oh, black okay. kid that goes to a majority white school, and it's based on Jerry Craft's okay. own life. And Okay, yeah, and it started to get challenged uh, because the age we live in. But he, he said that he, he has sure, seen sure. Um, some uh, of the challenges to this being in middle school or, or elementary school libraries be that why would we want a graphic novel, meaning the term graphic, not comic book, in a, child, right. in a library? Uh, like misunderstanding what graphic means in that, uh, where it's, it's the visual lexicon of graphic is what it's talking about. <laughs> now, A Contract with God is graphic both ways <laughs> in yes. the visual lexicon, and Very there's a lot so. of adult content uh, in mm -hmm. this um, that is presented in, again, Will Eisner's very caricatured uh, almost uh, like classic cartoony style, not not mm -hmm. like the modern, more uh, raw and ugly style of cartooning, but like a smooth line classic. No, this is yeah. He draws he draws like someone who grew up reading the funniest pages in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Windsor McKay and uh, yeah. oh, who did Pogo? <laughs> uh, that's another one that I know. yeah, Walt Kelly. Walt Kelly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can feel those some of those influences uh, on this, but it's such an important text. Like it's. Um, we were brainstorming what you would come on because, uh, you know, we're double recording uh, with you. There's one text you knew you wanted to talk about. And we were just threw out. I'm mm -hmm. like, oh, it's always good to have Mav on for a comic book discussion. What should we do? And we threw out a few. And it was kind of like, it's really odd. We haven't talked about a contract with God. <laughs> so yeah, it, I, it surprised me that you hadn't done one when you said, oh, you do contract with God. I was like, you, you've done 600 episodes or whatever. <laughs> How have you 400, done 400, 400. I don't know. But still <laughs> 400 episodes. How has contract with God not come up? But it's. It is weird because it's also I can see how it might be overlooked for a podcast because it does feel 
a um, little inside baseball. Um, your brother, uh, John, asked us if we've if we've ever done an episode of Vox Pop on the ages of comic books because he wants us to do do one because he you know wants to be a guest and stuff. And I was like, How? and and you know we've done two hundred and fifty uh -huh. episodes and. No, no, we've never talked about the ages of comic books. It just seems so obvious to everybody on our show that we've never done it. So we'll probably do that mm -hmm. soon. And that's one that, like, all of a sudden there's, like, interesting debates. Like, okay, what is really the line? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so that, so Contract with Gods in that it is so formative. And it's, and it's odd. I know you're going to ask me how I came to the text mm -hmm. soon. It's odd because I think a lot of people, it, it, it's one of those things where I feel like unless you're a scholar, maybe you're aware of it and then you're you've not actually read yeah it I, I i did not read it until <laughs> grad school uh until i was in my mm -hmm. phd program uh, but again i was reading references to it as a teenager um i definitely would not have been ready to read it <laughs> as a teenager I yeah. that out. fair fair yes <laughs> uh but I, I didn't actually get around to reading it until i was in my phd program and it was like well i'm doing a uh a comprehensive exam uh, and I've got to, you know, deal with the, the, the canon here. So uh, yep. it, it's time I finally sense. get around to it. Um, and it is, uh, well, I guess, can you tell me your story of how you came to it? I mean, almost that, right? Uh, I had a break between my undergrad years and when I, um, when I decided to go back to school, you know, go to grad school for a master's and eventually a PhD, I had a break. And during that break, I became addicted to spending my vacations going to academic conferences. And I just decided I was going to become a, you know, I was going to become a comic book scholar by myself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. When, uh, I, at PCA, uh -huh. I believe, was the one where I met you. But like, uh, but I was like, I'll start going to PCA. I'll start going to MLA. I'll start going. So I was just going to academic conferences, you know, for fun, because I'm a weirdo. And if I'm going to if I'm going to be a serious comic scholar, why don't I start doing some of the research and seeing what I should read? And, oh, you know, I've never read a contract with God and everybody says that, you know, it's the first, um, which I didn't know that there was questions about that at the time. But I, I guess I should read that. So that's why I bought my first copy. It was to teach myself to be a comic scholar. And then I, you know, read it again. I've taught it a few times. I've read it for my comps like you did. Yeah. Yeah, same thing. It is it is very much this is um uh, this is weird because I mean you said it was uh a very graphic book, a very adult book, but it's also very intentionally a literary text, mm -hmm. you know, to be very sophisticated. This is this is like um this is not a pop culture text yeah. in a lot of ways. It is this aspires to be spoken about in the same breath as a James Joyce or uh, like it, that's oh, what Henry. it wants. It uh, it, yeah, or, yes. Oh, well, one story in particular yeah. is, well, the first one but also is the fourth. very much. It's an, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, and they're trying to do that. They're trying to be in that they or they, he, because Eisner did this all by himself. He wrote Andrew. It. Um, I'm, I'm used to saying they when I talk about comics. Um, Eisner is trying to do something different. He is, you know, this is a man who right now is doing the spirit, right? Like he has a comic book tradition that he's working in, but he's escaping from doing the spirit and he's trying to do something very sophisticated with this. And that's what this is. Yeah. And it's um, both in terms of the title, you know, calling it the graphic novel that's trying to separate it from the comic book tradition mm -hmm. uh, and uh, which I, I Eisner would be the first to say that that is an unearned kind of looked down upon snootiness that the comic book uh, <laughs> genre or medium oh, I mean, uh, started, started to to accrue uh, but he knows it's there and he's reacting against it in terms of how he's going to market mm -hmm. this book and the kind of content he's going to put in the book and the type of story that he's trying to tell as you said this is like mm -hmm. a, a a deliberate effort for capital l literature 
Yeah. And it was and this was a trick to get places like well, in pre Barnes and Noble, but to get places like Walden Books and B. Dalton Booksellers and the, the the chains of bookstores that were around when this came out um, in the 70, 78, 78. So the chains of bookstores that would have been around in 1978 um, were still heavy in the in the the era of the Comics Code Authority. Mm -hmm. And this was not going to get a Comics Code no. Authority seal, period. That just was not going to happen. And also, he didn't want this sitting next to Spider-Man. Like he wanted this to be with the serious literature. So they stamped a graphic novel on it to like nobody. I mean, that was a term that nobody was using. Right. So if it says a novel on it, uh, I guess it's a novel. Stick it with the novels. Yeah. That was the trick. It was literally to trick people who didn't bother to open it into putting it with the serious literature. Yeah. Um, OK, well, let's run through some of the trivia about this uh, series of which like you. We could just spend the whole episode <laughs> kind of talking about Will Eisner <laughs> so much. and the trivia. I tried to, to keep it focused, but there is so much about this man and this particular work that uh, has been said. Mm -hmm. So he did uh, end up writing or producing two sequels, A Life Force in 1988 and Dropsy Avenue in 1995. Um, and all of these are fictionalized accounts based on his real life experiences. And mm -hmm. sometimes it's hard to know like where the line is of, you know, this is inspired by something I saw, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm streamlining it for narrative purposes or i'm adding all these twists and turns and or this is an account <laughs> of, mm -hmm. of something uh with the two that we're going to talk about i there was a little more specificity given by eisner um much later yeah, though. much much uh, later. one of them much later he told why yeah and uh, i'll save that for after the summary because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh that's something i spoilers yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it's it's pretty powerful once you once you know that uh as well mm-hmm um, this just this year, there was a Norton critical edition with annotated excerpts from Eisner's series set in Dropsy Avenue. It's not, it's um, because it takes the first two chapters from a contract with God and then a chapter each from a life force at Dropsy Avenue. I think is what it is. It's called a contract with God and other stories of Dropsy Avenue, but it's annotated mm -hmm. with like uh, references. So like, as you read the stories, when you get to the end of the the chapter, it'll have like the footnotes explaining all the cultural context of different specific things or, or, you know, translating Yiddish words, uh, things like that. But then it also contains uh, reprints of a couple interviews with Will Eisner and some essays um, about Will Eisner's work and about a contract with God. Uh, and I mean, for better or for worse, Norton is a major factor in deciding what's in the canon. <laughs> you know, what what counts as the canon of, yeah. of literature. Yeah. So the fact that Norton has put out um, a critical edition of A Contract with God does say that like his his effort or his reaching to be considered literature has been achieved. Um, I think the, oh, like in the Norton Anthology of American Literature, there's a chapter of Mouse. Uh, but as far as I know, there's no other critical editions that they've put out about a specific graphic novel. I'm not aware of any. So there are, there are, I, I think Mouse appears in a couple of them. Cause you, which one did you it's, say? It's, it's, in I know the it's in the Norton Anthology of American Literature. Okay. That's the one I was going to say. Cause I taught from that last yeah. year and I know it's in there and I think it might appear somewhere else too. Like short, like one of the short story collections, but no, no, it wouldn't be in short story. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not and sure. That's just where. a chapter. Um, that it's not uh, the, but, full, yeah. the full thing. And I mean, nor is the, the snort and critical edition that I got. I, uh, I really don't know how I like, it just appeared in my, in my faculty mailbox. So they must've just been scouring for scholars who have done comic book stuff. I didn't order this. It just showed up. <laughs> not, not, I didn't get one. So you're lucky. I, certainly I, I, don't mind. I don't know how I got on that list. <laughs> Um, 
if anyone's listening, Christopher Maverick, uh, Professor Christopher Maverick, University of Pittsburgh, I will yeah, take one. I, I, I didn't know that this was coming out. <laughs> you know. Uh, but it, it's, um, you know, it, it shows that there is a growing acceptance of some graphic novels being, you know, considered part of the canon of literature. Um, and and so it, I, I think it is significant that that came out this year. Um as I noted, uh, or as we've both noted, this book is credited with popularizing the term graphic novel. It's also credited with inventing mm-hmm. the term graphic novel. We can pretty clearly say he yeah. did not invent the term. Uh, but as far as like yeah. codifying this idea of a long form comic book style work by a single author that's meant to be all read in one sitting instead of serialized across comic books, this is where graphic novels uh, you know, became adopted for that. Now, at this time, mm-hmm. or at this point in 2023, when we're recording this, the term has kind of lost that meaning and just circled back to meaning comic book <laughs> for, for bookstores and a lot of people. Uh, it's just like, ah, comic books, graphic novels are the it same means, thing. It means big comic book yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, Will Eisner's career uh, spans from 1936. Most people say the, the Golden Age started in 1938 with the first appearance of Superman. So that's like pre-Golden Age comic books will eisner was there and his last book Mm -hmm. was um published in 2005 and that book is Mm -hmm. called the plot the secret story of the protocols of the elders of zion about the false Mm -hmm. conspiratorial book that inflamed anti-semitism in the 20th century uh all over the world um and i didn't know have you read that i didn't know that book existed um, I've not read it. I, I knew it existed. I've I have not, not read it. I, I know it's I know it's his last uh-huh. book. And because, again, I said it like um, you said he worked up until 2005. And it's like, yes, caveat. He also died in mm-hmm. 2005. So like it, so that so I knew I knew that it existed for that reason. But I have never read it. And I probably yeah. should. Just it, I'm just you saying. know, the last book of Will Eisner. I should. I don't know. I mean, like, I don't know what it's about other than the obviousness from the title that, well, OK, this is this is going to be heavy on, you know, the on ideas of Jewish but i don't know anything beyond that um because i never got around yeah to it. i um am teaching a class on mouse and in the lead up to like our major discussion about the text of mouse and all of the uh you know the show and the holocaust that is covered in there we spent a day talking about the history of anti-semitism and so like i had a huge mm-hmm. lecture where i was talking about the protocols of the elders of zion and i just and uh we'd also been talking about like other graphic novels that are you know considered great works that you know and so i you know i i t- touched on persepolis and watchmen and uh a contract with god and then when i was putting the trivia together for this that was on on uh uh, two or no Wednesday that I was having that lecture in class <laughs> like the whole day on the protocols of the elders design mm. and also acknowledging some of the other great uh comic graphic novelists that have that have produced works and then I'm putting up the trivia I'm like what is the last thing Will Eisner did and I saw the title I'm like well I'm gonna have to go read that right now <laughs> I need yeah. to order that yeah I mean I I should I mean I'm, I'm I'm very curious but I've just never gotten to it and I, you know it's the kind of thing where I guess I could stop at the comic book store tomorrow and buy it I'm sure they have a copy <laughs> um so Eisner is uh you know through his long career he's uh most associated with this work uh Contract with God and a character called the Spirit which was an early uh pulp hero slash superhero uh you know right writing mm-hmm. the line there um but he's also known besides being a master of the craft himself as a teacher so his he has two books um comics and sequential art and graphic storytelling the visual narrative that are i think are probably considered like right there with scott mcleod's understanding comics is like okay here's your base level 
Um, mm-hmm. understanding Scott would say they're more important, but Scott's is probably the most well known. Uh-huh. Um, his first book, but Scott's first book references, particularly the first Weisner book, Sequential Art, a yeah. lot. Um, and and Scott would consider Eisner the true master who taught, who who he learned mm-hmm. from. But there, yeah, it's certainly up there. Um, as the basis for what people like you yeah. and I now call comic mm-hmm. theory. And as you said, the, the Eisners are the annual awards given out for the like the the version of the Academy Awards for films, but, uh, you know, for, for comic books. And that is just named after Will Eisner. I think he was still alive when they named them the Eisners. <laughs> he was still yeah, alive. Which yes. can you imagine <laughs> that being, an, you know, that honor? <laughs> yeah, my award. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I yeah. have long advocated that the Academy Awards should just rename the best score uh film score award the you know the yeah, williams, the williams. You, you win the williams this year and i think they should do that before he dies <laughs> like just start saying and the the, the williams goes too <laughs> um okay well i'm gonna uh, get to the summary in just a second but before we do that listeners we want to thank you for downloading this episode and we especially want to thank any of you who support us on patreon if you'd like to support us financially we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support a show with at least a dollar per month all supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quickcast where we're giving updates on our 2023 fantasy box office game and also discussing the recent media that we've been consuming. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or, cho- or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. All right, uh, on to chapter one, A Contract with God. And uh, the main character in this, his his name is spelled F-R-I-M-M-E. I do not speak Yiddish. Uh, Mav, I don't believe you speak Yiddish. I do not. <laughs> and so we're going to go be going with Frim for the name uh, is how we're going to pronounce mm-hmm. that. And uh, we apologize if that's wrong. We tried looking up a pronunciation right before we started recording. And the uh, the computer generated voices were not helpful. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, in the Bronx, a man walks through an incredible downpour, getting soaked as he stumbles through with slumped steps. He's returning from burying his daughter, Rochelle. In despair, he returns to a small room and thinks that this uh, should not have happened to him because he has a contract with God. Now we see a flashback of Frim, a young Hasidic Jew growing up in Russia with fear of anti-Semitism all around. His parents die, and the Jewish elders who have seen that Frim is a well-mannered and very intelligent boy have decided to send him to America. While uh, walking to the port where he will board a ship, Frim carves out a contract with God into a stone. He will live a life filled with good deeds, and he expects God to see this and recognize his efforts, and it's implied, reward him. Uh, In America, Frim becomes an important member of the Jewish community. He's trusted with many responsibilities by members of his synagogue. Uh, And at a certain point, someone leaves, uh, you know, he's an adult now, but someone leaves an infant girl at his doorstep. And because of his contract with God, he feels he must care for this baby. He and the baby, whom he names Rochelle, have a love-filled relationship as she grows, but she falls ill and dies. And Frim screams that this can't be possible because he has fulfilled his end of the contract with God. He spits on the stone that he still has with him, where he carved the the original contract and he throws it out his window. After mourning his daughter's death, he shaves his beard for the first time, and he goes to a bank and uses money that he had been trusted with from the synagogue to buy uh, the apartment building on Dropsy Avenue, where he had lived. He orders rents to be increased and heat to be turned down. He wants to milk it for all the profits he can, and he soon has enough money to buy another building and then another. He takes on a mistress as his property empire grows. One night, his mistress asks what he wants out of life. He never drinks. They don't go to church. What is he even looking for? Uh, Frim goes back to his old synagogue and pays back the money that he had taken, and he also pays interest on it. He then asks the Jewish elders to write a new contract for him. He's, he explains his original contract, but says it was simple and childish, and he asks the elders to write one that is based in Jewish law. 
Uh, they at first refuse, then debate, and then they write a contract. After it's written, he gives them the lease to the apartment building on Dropsy Avenue uh, in gratitude. And he reads the contract over and over, vowing to live a new, better life, a life filled with charity. He wants to get married and have a daughter. As he announces to God that this time you will not violate our contract, he suffers a fatal heart attack and dies. In an epilogue, a fire breaks out in the neighborhood of the Dropsy Avenue building. The synagogue's tenement doesn't burn down, but a young Jewish boy is hailed as a hero for helping families in another building to escape. That boy comes across a stone in an alley with a contract with, uh, with God written on it, and he decides he will sign his name on this contract and live a life of service. The end. Chapter two is called The Street Singer. Eddie is a street singer, a man with no job, who wanders the alleys of tenements singing and hoping that people will throw down change or food. In one alley, an aging woman motions for him to come up to her room. He does. She introduces herself as the diva Marta Maria. Marta seduces him. He is plenty willing to be seduced. Uh, while explaining that she was an opera singer and that she can get him an agent. She lost her career when she was caring for her alcoholic husband, but wants to get back into show business, uh, helping a young talent like Eddie. She gives him money for new clothes so she can take him to a talent agency. He leaves and uses the money to buy booze. With her, and then he goes home to a wife and a crying child. As he gets more drunk, he becomes abusive to his wife and child. In the morning, he stops at a bar to get a drink to try and fight off his hangover. I think that's like just trying to like if I can uh, hair of the dog. <laughs> yes, raise back up to to a, a mm -hmm. lower drunk level instead of this massive headache. Yes, uh, the bartender tried and true refuses him, but then Eddie explains that he has a real path to get a job and money now. So the bartender gives him a drink. But as he's, I, I don't know, I, I, I want to say sobering up, but that's not what he's doing, right? <laughs> Even though it's, well, hair of the dog, this is a tried and true alcoholic uh, technique wherein you, you're trying to get to the base level to where if you're a functional alcoholic, you can function with a little bit of booze in your system, but you don't have the hangover <laughs> right. headache. That's the trick. Um, if you if you drink a lot in college, you might know something about this. I'm just yeah, saying. It is a little outside of my wheelhouse, but <laughs> so he's, he's trying to get back to that level. And as he does, he realizes That's right. he never wrote down the woman's address. And he actually, he, he can't remember where he even was. All the tenements look the same <laughs> to him. The end. So... Neither of these are particularly happy stories. And I will just say, nope. we we skipped out chapter Nor three and four. Two. And those are maybe worse. <laughs> <laughs> Much yeah. so. There, there are happy moments mm -hmm. in them. And well, in one yeah, of them. Four. Um, <laughs> in four. <laughs> there's happy moments. But no, they are, they are not. Uh, contract with God and other tenement stories is not about being happy. This is Eisner trying to and i mean i'm i'm projecting here i'm being a literary scholar here and you know, just kind of reading into it but i i read this as eisner um looking into and self-investigating the darker parts of his own childhood and upbringing mm. so there is in the fourth story there is a very there's a very specific character named william who is very obviously supposed to be will um uh a young i think he's like 15 in the story uh losing his virginity to a much older woman it and that's like the okay thing that happens in that story <laughs> everything else, everything else is really dark well, and, um, and even that pretty problematic I, with the age gap no, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely i'm saying that's the most okay like that's where it's like oh, okay i guess it's consensual you know like that like that's where you go with that one and and this is but like everything that happens in here i think what he's trying to do is he's trying to say this is the struggle this is the immigrant struggle of growing up in these are tenements which are 
which have the same the what you associate with that word today is what they were then they were newer but like it was it was very much a poor area of town he's living there with his family because they have nowhere else to go they are poor jewish immigrants and he's just like seeing that um maybe not everybody is perfect and maybe there's some dark things that you just sort of have to deal with and this is the struggle and i think he just wants to I don't want to say I I don't even know that he's critiquing it so much as sort of trying to hash it out in his mm-hmm. own mind sort of in front of us. Yeah, I, I definitely think there is some like a uh, self therapy that's happening. Yeah, as, that's a good word. <laughs> as he writes these stories. And uh, I mean, what what we learn later on in his life when he finally reveals this that we didn't know particularly mm-hmm. about the first story is that uh, he lost a daughter at age 16 to leukemia. Mm-hmm. And a daughter that most people didn't know he had up until I mean, it, it, he he had a very private life outside of his. I mean, not that comic book authors in his day were massive celebrities, mm-hmm. but they were celebrities enough that he had many friends who didn't know that he had children. Yeah. I, I mean, and, it was also and, such mm-hmm. a different era where like we no one knew anyone else's private life. There's no Wikipedia. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh like like unless they told you you didn't know. There was no like mm-hmm. public footprint the way that there are for so many people's lives today. Mm-hmm. Um and and so this book comes out and it's really I think it was almost 20 years later that he reveals. I believe he he um he I believe it's in the 19 the 2000 edition mm-hmm. or the 1999 edition so it's uh, and it comes so it's literally 21 or 22 years later when he says okay I'm finally I'm fine I mean he basically writes a preface where he says I'm finally re- ready to talk about this what what the first story in contract of God is about is it's about um it's about me essentially losing faith in God when my daughter mm-hmm. died like and he's and he's like I had a daughter, um, my and you know she was taken from my wife and I. She was a little older than than uh, Rochelle or Rachel, uh, which uh, in the book, yeah. and but she, she's sixteen and she dies and and he felt as though God abandoned him and lost faith in God. He's like there is no God because if, if there is a God he wouldn't have taken mm-hmm. my daughter. And and he writes about it. He writes about it in the preface to like that. I think it's the two thousand yeah. edition. And he he calls so it an exercise in personal later. anguish. Um, write it, writing yeah. that story. And he says that he, in earlier versions of the story, he had used his daughter's name, Alice, instead of Rochelle or Rachel mm-hmm. uh, with that. And, uh, you know, there's the um, the literary theory of like the author is dead and it's just the work. All we look at is the text. This is one of those mm-hmm. examples where it's like, OK, getting that authorial intent changes my relationship as a reader with the text. And it changes yeah. my interpretation of the text. And like, like it, it really does open up so much more insight. And I understand that there are times where doing authorial intent can get you lost <laughs> in, in working through your reaction to a text or the meaning of the text. This is not one of those times. This is like, oh, wow. Uh, it's a different gut punch to learn that about Will Eisner. In particular, because it is it is now published in modern versions of the book, it is published as the you know, as the introduction includes him admitting that I, I would argue that it has thus become part of mm-hmm. the text in a way. Yeah. Um, Cause there's no, there's just no escaping it anymore. Yeah. And it, it, I think knowing that immediately shifts your understanding of all these stories to just, you know, how personal this isn't Eisner sitting back and like imagining a tale 
mm-hmm. like this is there's something that's so raw. Um, well, the first these. the first page of the of the story proper um, does announce that they are. Uh, it, it says they're not fake stories. It says they're. Um, oh, how's he? How does he face it? It's um okay. Um, the following stories are based on on life in these tenements during the 1930s, the dirty 30s. They are true stories. Only the telling and the portrayals have converted them to fiction, mm-hmm. which is weird it's a it's a you know it's it's the it's the reverse of, of based you know, on a true Alan story yeah. is, <laughs> or okay, this is an imaginary story but aren't they yeah. all well this is true how true i mean like i don't know that it matters because i i the intent of the book was always you are supposed to believe that this is the real true jewish immigrant struggle between the two world wars you're supposed to believe that this even if these are not specific individual people, this kind of thing happened in, you know, in the horrors of, li- of tenement life in New York City in 1931. I think that's what you're supposed to go with. That's how you're supposed mm-hmm. to feel. And I think that's that's what he's trying to do. But then when he tells the story about the, you know, the real Alice Eisner, his actual daughter, you go, uh, it's, it is such a punch to the gut yeah. where you realize that not only does it happen, which is sad enough, but it happens. He's uh, I believe she dies in 1970. Contract with God comes out in 77 and he doesn't tell anybody about it till 2000. Like that's so that's like that's a man who's just being tormented by the loss of a child for 30 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, and probably for, you know, after yeah. that till, you know, till he dies. But I mean, who just like literally carries it as a burden that he's not willing to talk about other than letting it inform his work. Mm-hmm. And it creates a really powerful work. Um, one of the first things <laughs> I want to talk about is like these opening pages. I don't think I've ever seen anyone draw rain as good as Will Eisner. <laughs> <laughs> it does feel real. It, and this is um, depending on what version you get, it's either going to be sepia art or black and white. Um, mm-hmm. and yet there's something about the puddles on the ground with these just ink lines at an angle that he draws coming down mm-hmm. that you, you feel the splashes and it's, it's not photorealistic art in any way, but it's perfect for depicting this kind of a downpour and the mm-hmm. way that the slumped figures shoulders are bowed, uh, and the water is just running off. Like you, this is a picture of grief. It just is. <laughs> um, and the level of cartooning that he has here, this is why the awards are called the Eisners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you just look at this and you're like, how did he do this with ink? Like, how do these, how are these ink strokes so evocative to, to the well, reader? There's a detail that, there's a detail that you didn't mention that, I, that I've noticed every time I've read it. And it's just, it, every time I read it, it, it is something that just stands out to me so much, so much when the story proper starts on the first part of, of, of the actual contract with God story, all day the rain poured down on the Bronx without mercy. The rain is splashing off the words. It's not just off the picture. The rain affects the lettering. Uh-huh. And then so much so that when as you read through it, um, once you get to the next page, only the tears of 10,000 weeping angels could, t- could cause such a deluge. And the, and the rain has caused the letters to run down the page. Mm-hmm. He allows the ink to drip down the page, which makes it feel very raw and very real, such that like, you can feel, I mean, it's, it's the rain, but since Frem is a grown man crying over the loss of his daughter, it just feels very, you know, you finally get to see his face, his face a few days, a few pages later, and he's got tears that you can distinguish from the rain. Um, And it just feels like 
the trauma inflicted on this individual is tangible because of even if he's not photorealistic, he feels hyper real. He feels he feels like the you know, the very picture of grief because of the way Eisner has rendered. him. Yeah. And there's like in these early pages, there's so many times where he like gives you the impression of the background mm-hmm. without drawing it mm-hmm. all in. Uh, like like when he's he's walking up the steps, all you really see are the steps and the door. Um, at, well, as he's approaching the steps, you see the steps, uh, and a door and a few bricks around the door, and then the rest is just rain and blank space, uh, around there, mm-hmm. and that blend of like this this the the care that's taken in these raindrops that are splashing in the puddles near his feet, and then only an impression of a building. It, it it's something that. I don't know if it's the uh, there's a tension between the the explicit drawings that he's giving and the implied reality of everything that's around there or what it is that's that's working so well. But I just like stop and stare at the picture and try and like, like I stop and take it in again and again and same like these first several pages is where you I, I think of uh, the grieving from is where you feel Eisner really pouring his heart into this work more so than any other page. Um, yeah, we should note. In the actual this, so each of the stories has a name. So it's a contract with God and other and and other tenement stories. This first story is actually called a contract with God, and it's the only one that does not have panels in the truest sense. Mm -hmm. There are most of the most pages have only one panel on them. On them, some have two drawings, like sort of two Mm -hmm. two things that are happening but they're not laid out like traditional comic panels. yeah like it's uh, there's no nine panel grid or anything like that right and it's they're all splashes and they're splashes that like sort of are so minimalistic it, it almost feels like you're wasting space on the page but it's not a waste it's showing you how alone he is even once he becomes rich and successful later on in the story he is just so alone yeah, yeah I, like every choice that he makes, like when he is uh, when he shaves his beard and he goes to the bank, mm-hmm. then we get like pure black background, uh, you know, like he's he's selling his soul. Right. You know, and <laughs> and, and it does feel like, you know, the, the banker is drawn with these glasses that where you don't see eyes uh, in them. Mm-hmm. And it's just pure black with just highlights on Frim's face and the and the the banker's face are like the light uh, that you see. And it really does feel like you know, uh, after a contract with God, now he's making a contract with the devil uh, to become essentially a slumlord that's going to abuse and manipulate his tenants in order to, uh, you know, increase his profits uh, as much as he can. He embraces it like minute one. He walks out of the bank and he's like, okay, raise the rent, yeah. lower the, and lower the gas. <laughs> like, what do you do? It's like, he just like, I'm going to be evil and, now. And no exceptions. Like someone's like, what about, what about, oh, you know, uh, old lady, uh, you know, the widow, <laughs> you know, the, yeah. what, what about the widow's might? Basically. He's like, ah, take it. He's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that is, by the way, uh, if, if so just little details, just attention to detail. Um, it's old lady. I don't remember her name. Miss but Mrs. The, Kelly, the kid, she's on a widow's Mrs. pension Kelly, from Ireland, right? And she is who the kid, the kid who finds his contract, saves at the very end. Oh, okay. I had not little details, not caught that. Yeah. That is great. <laughs> yeah. And and then again, we get yeah. like such beautiful highlighting uh, in when he in the scenes when he's with his his mistress. It's the same, like almost a black background, not pure black, because the mistress doesn't seem like an evil, manipulative person the way the banker is <laughs> presented. Mm-hmm. Um, no, she's uh, she, I think she's intended to be 
she's intended to be kind of a gold digger, mm-hmm. but also I, I don't think it's malicious. Yeah, I think there's a part. naivete like, so about her. Right. It's supposed to be it's it's supposed to be a 1930s relationship where where, frankly, marrying for money is kind of, you know, is kind of a norm. It's what you sort of it's what you want for your daughter, because there's not a lot of equality. I mean, not that there is now, but like it's perfect. But like it's like one of those things that you like everybody hopes that their daughter can grow up and marry rich. It's what you're hoping for. And so you get the impression she's much younger than Frim is. She would not be with him if he were not rich but also she does seem to care for him even though she doesn't seem very smart she's got you know she's 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 written with a kind of a goofy um new york accent affect Mm -hmm. that like you're supposed to kind of go oh okay she's you know she's just kind of a a silly flapper girl Mm -hmm. you know but but she does seem to genuinely care for yes and she is kind of the source of inspiration for him to like correct his life <laughs> by saying mm-hmm. but when she's just kind of flat out it's like what do you want out of life it's like, well <laughs> not this <laughs> yeah yeah and 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 it's not yeah it, but it doesn't it does not feel and i would say he's not mean or malicious mm-hmm. to her either he just doesn't seem to be particularly loving but he's not a particularly loving guy after his daughter dies. It's, it's, it's very much a, well, I tried the loving thing. It didn't work. So now I'm trying to be rich. That's not going to work either. <laughs> yeah, that's that was the plan. So, OK, so and then is I mean, it is such a brilliant piece of naivete, right? Because what he realizes at this end point is like, wait a minute being a loving you know a loving person devoted to this contract i wrote when i was nine that didn't work and being you know a slumlord isn't making me happy you know what the problem was the problem is that i was nine and a nine-year-old can't write a contract i'm stupid okay clearly the solution is i'm just going to get a good contract the rabbis will know what to do i mean it it is such a even though he's an older man at that point it is the naivete of a a child inside Mm -hmm. who says I'll just ask my minister. You know, I'll go to the rabbi. The rabbi yeah. knows, like, knows yeah, they'll fix he my relationship with a God. contract with God. <laughs> Basically. Yeah, that's that's it. It's literally that much thought is put into it. And the fact that he is willing, I mean, he has the ironic heart attack at the end because he challenges God. I mean, I think it's like, you know, God struck him down because he finally said, Look, you won't renege on the deal this time. It's what he's what he's kind of going across. But it's not, it's not malice. It's just that he wants to believe. He wants to believe so hard that you can just make a deal with God. And long as you in, you know hold up your end of the bargain, so will he. Like, he needs that to be true. And, and, he, and he just sees no other way out. You know, it, it is, it's such a, it's tragic and touchy yeah. at the same time. <laughs> you know, it's like, like you, I mean, you like feel just so bad like, for him, basically. Yeah. <laughs> like, and also because the rabbis seem to be like, well, obviously we can't do this. This seems weird. And, and then they're like, well, if we're not going to do it for him, who will do it for him? You know, like clearly they're just trying to talk themselves into taking his mm-hmm. money. But it, but it is still it's an interesting question of religion, right? Because, uh, you know, to the lay person, isn't that why you go to church? Like you're looking for you're looking for the, uh, for, for the guidance. For, these people yeah, the, 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 you want the, the guidance to live a good life. And there is also like a. a and understanding that living a good life may yield blessings, <laughs> but mm-hmm. that then immediately leads to the tension of like, why do bad things happen to good people? And why, you know, why do good things happen to bad right. people? Which this story is exploring both of those pretty explicitly. Yes. That's part of the crisis mm-hmm. of faith that he goes through. And that's also like the age old tension of religion. 
you know, mm-hmm. th- that you can find like philosophical debates about this going back as long as we have religion, uh, you know, about mm-hmm. in all in all denominations, mm-hmm. all all traditions. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I, I think there's something, as you said, like childlike and simplistic in the idea of like netting this thousands of years old philosophical debate on which you can find whole treatises to a child making a contract with God on a stone. On a rock. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the perfection of it, though, is that it, pro- you know, it it succeeds him, right? Like he dies, and then this other kid finds the rock, and he's like, and he and the kid's like, "There's writing on this rock. I'm into it. Yeah, okay, I'm into this. That's, that's gonna be my thing. I'm just gonna kind. I'm kind of. I'm in on this contract with God. That's like the fact that the kid is just in on something that simplistic, kind of leads you to believe that this this tradition can endure and ultimately maybe it wasn't for naught, right? Like he, because even though Frim's the slumlord, it's implied that he does a lot of good things. Mm-hmm. Well, if not incident. And, and we see know. him as uh, like when he's, yes, he, this is the moment that he's trying to like course correct his life, but like, there's no like waffling of him when he goes to take the money, give the money back and with interest. He's like, no, here's your money. Here's your interest. I, you know, I took this, that was wrong. Uh, and, and so, there, there's um, like when he chooses to be good, he's definitely going to be good. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. and, and as you said, like he's not uh, like so many of the the kind of relationships that you see depicted of of, uh, you know, the rich man with the young, naive uh, mistress. It is borderline or explicitly abusive. And we know Will Eisner is not hesitant to depict explicit abuse uh, in, in these stories. Happens in, happens in the next and story. We don't have any of that in this. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, so it's and, not... and the very and again, the very next story mm-hmm. does you know trigger warning for the episode, right? Like it, it, there's some there's some rough stuff in this book, but here, I I Frem's biggest sin at any point is you know theft, but yeah, ta- taking that the turns money, out okay, uh, and then and, and then neglect, yeah, and then, and then that, like just uh, he's neg- neglect. The, the slumlord behavior of uh, not outright. Um, you know, stealing from from his tenants, but manipulating the situation to make as much right. profit as he can. Right. And but even then, like it's a it's sort of because there's a there's a, a point that points it out that like he he um, he could and should just tear down yeah. Dropsy Avenue. And, yes. And he and not not he won't tear it down. He won't yep. sell it. He sells all of his other buildings. He he sells buildings. He buys and sells buildings like trading cards. He is he, he becomes a real estate mogul. But this one building he can't he just can't let go because because of his own past, that building means too much to him, and that's gotta mean something. It's gotta be good for something, even if it's even if it's like a selfishness, a, a selfish nostalgia. Mm-hmm. It still it feels like this is pointing out that at his most evil, Frim has a lot of humanity left yeah. in him because it, because it's not even you know he's he's behaving like oh i'm gonna stick it to god but it was never really about sticking the sticking it to god it's about this is a father grieving over the loss of his 10 year old daughter mm-hmm. he lost his kid and that's that's what this is about and it's a grudge that that character holds for you know the next 20 years or whatever yeah um before we jump into the next one i do also want to point out when he gets that contract from uh from the the rabbis there's something that's really interesting done in the in the lighting where the contract is lighting his face. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and, and like, like the Pulp Fiction brief. Yeah, it, it doesn't, uh, <laughs> unless you're really looking for it. Like, I think you can read the pages and it doesn't really process. But when you start to look at like, what is the light source there? Like, he, he should be in shadows. You realize, <laughs> oh, the contract is is glowing for him, basically. Um, and he gets like a, a 
again, childlike giddiness uh, about him. It, it, and it really does feel um, like he's he's almost quoting the scenes in A Christmas Carol when Scrooge like is giddy when he wakes up and he's like, it's mm-hmm. Christmas Day. I, they go sit in one night. And, you know, and every performer like does like a little bounce in their step and a little clapping of hands. And like the, the direct uh, quote here in the word balloon is like, I will make a new life. I will give. I will do charitable work. And it really does feel like Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, ha- having that turn uh, in, in A Christmas Carol. But then with the, the tragical Henry twist of uh, immediately, you know, there's a heart attack before you can carry any of that out. Mm-hmm. All right. Should we talk a little bit about the alley singer, which, uh, like the, the first one, uh, Eisner says, this is, you know, inspired by like street singers. I saw when I was a kid, <laughs> uh, growing up in, in New York, uh, that this, this description of people who would just go sing into the alleys and hope people would throw down some tip of some, you know, some form, either food or, or some change. That's something that he witnessed. Um, well, I mean, that's the thing that still exists in cities like mm-hmm. New York. I mean, buskers are busker is a yeah. job, right? Like uh, a lot of a lot of this has moved to street corners and, subways. and you know, like bus stops yeah. and subways and mm-hmm. stuff. But this is but this is the thing, you know, that you, you know, you go out there with your guitar and you you play a little song. You hope somebody throws a yeah, dollar. Yeah, this is little, like the, the street singer is like the, the wandering uh, vaudeville, you know, yeah. or, or minstrel yeah, version yeah. Of, of that mm-hmm. uh, and versus the like, I've got my corner. <laughs> uh, that, yeah. that is what we see more often now, um, mm-hmm. which is you know, going to be the source of uh, the irony in this story, uh, you know, at the end that the street singer is going to have the opportunity to, you know, uh, move up in some way, get something that's a little more secure than the the vagabond life that he's kind of living within mm-hmm. the confines of New York City. And yet he, he was too drunk to pay attention and everything looks the same. So he can't. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you mentioned it in your recap, um, but. Um, it's also the 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 drawback that Marta didn't use her real name; she used her stage mm-hmm. name. So when he goes looking for her, there is nobody named Marta Maria because that's a stage name. Her real name is like Sylvia something, and she and it just doesn't occur to her like she's trying to sound famous and stuff. So she used yeah. Her stage it, name if he had heard of her, it would have been Marta Maria. Right. Yeah. So they're they, they've so, they've done this to themselves. <laughs> they're both a little bit at fault. <laughs> yeah. and, and also, mm-hmm. neither one of these are good people. Just putting that out there. No, no. Uh, he is he's a horrible person, horrible husband, father. Mm-hmm. Like the uh, the the physical violence when he's drunk, it is hard to see depicted in on this page. When mm-hmm. you know when he says shut up and and throws a punch uh, at his wife and then you know hits her over the head again and then she hits him and knocks him out basically or, or mm-hmm. like puts him into a stupor uh, after that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, he throws he throws the yeah. baby. That's the first thing he does. He picks up the baby and he throw and he physically throws the baby across the room and it lands on the couch. Mm-hmm. It's it's a lot. It, it's it's rough. He is a he is a very bad person. He's an alcoholic, abusive, uh, you know, f- uh, husband and, and father who cheats mm-hmm. on on his wife and abuses her at home. Uh, and and, it's, and his plan with Marta, by the way, he's not in love with Marta. His plan is, OK, she's sweet on me, so I'm going to sleep with her, use her till she makes me famous. And then I'm going to leave her and go back to my wife and which, kid. Or, I'm just going to go ahead and plan. say that plan would not have been carried out, even if he'd no, been able to. No, but but that's but 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 that's the that's what he tells himself plan, to, to feel right? good about so, himself right now. <laughs> Basically, like yeah. I'm, I'm kind of doing this for my wife and kid, I think is like the twisted morality that he's trying to allow himself to take these actions but no yeah none of this was going to work out you know they're just there's irony in Mm -hmm. it but they're just bad people yeah (laughs) they're the yeah with 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 frem you have the uh like there's just a pervasive sadness that like even Mm -hmm. when he's 
he's becoming the slumlord. Like he's just, uh, there's so much pity that you're feeling for him. Cause this is so clearly driven by grief for, you know, the, the, the choices that he's making again, that part, that story feels more personal than any of the, you know, than, than these other stories. Uh, even if you don't know, I will, it's your story. I think there's something that's so raw about that one. Uh, this one, mm-hmm. uh, there's no sympathy for anyone other than the wife and child <laughs> back back at his apartment. And she's not great. Not that, I mean, not, yeah. not, not that she's, I mean, if you're, if you're really looking for somebody to identify with, I guess that's who you pick. Mm-hmm. You know, the baby doesn't do anything wrong. Yeah. The baby's just the baby. Yeah. That's absolutely fine. innocent <laughs> in all of this. There's no, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and no, no one here is great. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I guess the question that I have, if, like, why is this work so evocative for so many readers? Why is it now getting a Norton anthology edition? When, like, we talked through the story, like, there's some irony, but it's also, you don't feel bad about it happening to anyone. <laughs> in, in the- yeah, you're almost like, when you can't find it, you're almost like, good. Yeah. You deserve it. It's a, it's the opposite It's the opposite of Gift of the Magi, mm-hmm. right? To Gift of the Magi, you go, oh, you know, they they gave up their, their most valued possession for the other one. That's so sweet. And then, um, you know, and then I, I think when I, was, when I was on the show talking about Emma yeah. and Otter, <laughs> I said, it's Gift of the Magi, except for it's broken because they actually ruined the other one's livelihood <laughs> to do it present. It's, a, it's, it's really screwed up. And the, but, but, but they at least still love each other. Here it's like, oh, irony, you lost the thing that you wanted most good you don't deserve it good for you good i'm glad you're suffering uh-huh. like that's what you're left with because they're um it's but it's still just the essence of dramatic irony and the rawness of emotion like everything about it everything that we said about the artwork in the previous story still holds true mm-hmm. here eisner is a master and it's in exactly the same emotionally manipulative way that he makes me feel sorry for Frim, even when Frim is being bad. He makes me just not want to root for it. Yeah. It's the opposite of most protagonists. Like, like, um, uh, if you ever watch, I don't know, something like breaking bad mm-hmm. where the question is like, Oh, he's a horrible person, but like, but like the, the portrayal the that Cranston, about Brian Cranston all, does right? it. Yeah, it's it's compelling and you want to and you just you feel bad about wanting to wanting to see this horrible person succeed here. You're watching Eddie and you're like, I hope you get what's coming mm-hmm. to you. <laughs> you don't deserve like you're looking at this protagonist going, I hope it I hope you get hit by a bus. You know, like what do you, something something better happen to you because he's a horrible person. And then when what happens is that he just doesn't you know, he doesn't get to be rich. He gets you know, he's basically no worse off on the last page than he is on the first page. He's in exactly the same. But place. you feel a little bit of satisfaction that he had hope taken from him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Good. Good. Your dreams were crushed. Yeah. Good. You know, and that's that's all you've got. And it's all you can hang on to. And it feels like I'm making fun of it. But it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely brilliantly done because even though you don't care about this person and you don't particularly care for Marta either, she's not, you know, she's she's attempting to use this younger man. He's not he's not like, you know, inappropriately younger, but, you know, it's she doesn't really care for him. She doesn't know him. She doesn't even know his name. She she doesn't even ask. Mm -hmm. She says, what's your name? Never mind. I'm going to call you Roland or Ronald. Ronald. I'm going to call you Ronald Barry. Mm hmm. Like because she thinks he looks like Drew Barrymore, she doesn't even want him want to know his name, and she doesn't care. And that's sort of the kinds of people they are. So it's little details like that that manipulate you as a reader into wanting to hate them, and so wanting to continue hate reading. 
<laughs> you know, you want to read it so that you so that you can. I mean, you don't know, I guess if you've I mean, I guess your listeners will know because they've heard the episode. But like if you've never read it before, you might not know how it's going to turn out. But you're you're reading it in order to see. You know, I, I got to know what happens is, is how it feels. And it, it's a weird it's a weird position to be put in. As a reader. Yeah, there's there's. um like I haven't read it, but I heard I it's gonna be feel very strange to make this comparison. But I heard uh, a podcast that was talking about the Twilight book phenomenon. And, and <laughs> <Okay>. they said <laughs> like this isn't my favorite kind of writing, but there is something propulsive in mm-hmm. that makes you want to turn the page and just see what happens next. Uh it, it, Twilight's actually well written. in this story. I understand why people I've not I've never read it, so I, I'm not making judgment. Like fine. this person was kind of like yeah. I know that a lot of people don't don't think it's very well written. He's like, but there is something that is like compelling and propulsive in terms of the story. Mm-hmm. And in this instance, I don't know that it's necessarily like the story, the, you know, like not a lot actually happens like that. That summary was one paragraph and I probably like was, was <laughs> filling it out. <laughs> it. <laughs> but there's something in Will Eisner's portrayal of these humans that is propulsive and compelling where you like turn the page mm-hmm. and you kind of have to see, you know, where, where are they going? Uh, you know, and, and I think that is, there's nothing noble about any of these characters. There's nothing like there's no chosen one narrative of, of, you know, high fantasy or anything at all. It's just as slice of life. And at times as dark a slice of life as you can imagine. And yet I think one, I like, I I can't turn away uh, from, from (laughs) this particular portrayal of that slice of life. And this is not going to be a book for everyone. Like if you, if you're wanting some light reading, do not pick up a contract with God. Oh God. (laughs) No, 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 no. (laughs) Um, but like I just I stop and stare at the way he draws faces and mm-hmm. the way he he again does the like this implied background on so many of these uh, where he doesn't actually complete it on some pages he does like on some pages you get fully rendered where you you can see that Eisner is a master at drawing like the 3D spaces that his characters live in uh, if he wants to but there's also times where he's like I'm just gonna give you like a hint and your mind's gonna mm-hmm. fill in the rest uh, and to like stop and think about like why he's making this choice right then I. This is what you get when you get a real master that is perfect at their craft, uh, that, that is uh, presenting a story that, again, like that that story, that that one paragraph summary, you may hear that and say, that doesn't sound like the greatest story I've ever heard. <laughs> and yet when you see it portrayed by Will Eisner, you're like, this is astounding what I'm being given here. I think a lot of it is it's a story about hopelessness mm-hmm. right like that's that's and, and i mean i'm referring to the entire book yeah. now um everything all four of the stories are ultimately about people who are just for many of them just at the end of their rope it's the like what you're getting with um with the street singer in you know more so than any of the others is that these are people who just have not only do they not have any hope left they've also given up they're not even trying eddie is not looking for a break when he's when he's singing on the when he's singing on the street corner he has resigned himself to this is what my life is my life is i'm going to be a poor guy singing on the street corner hopefully to make enough money for diapers and beer that's what I want out of life. That's mm-hmm. like that's like it. That, that's that's where his wife's pregnant. We should note. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. With it, with another with another kid. So it's it's that appears to be just he's accepted defeat. So if anything, I think maybe he is slightly worse off because he 
wasn't looking for hope. And then all of a sudden he got some and then it got taken away from him. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So so that's part of the compellingness of it. It's just it feels very emotional and raw, Mm -hmm. partly because of the art, partly because of the writing. Um, it, It feels tangible to read every story in Ooh, here. tangible is like they... a really good word for yeah. this uh and and again i think there's this tension because the art like it, it almost feels like as in some some instances like as clean as like a, a classic uh, like carmark donald duck you know just just mm-hmm. clean crisp lines everything kind of rounded uh these these are not like photorealistic depictions of humans again they're all kind of caricatured uh and and yet it's like it just grabs you so clearly and it does feel like lived in these stories uh, that the, you, this is, <laughs> this is capturing <laughs> a, a, a moment in time for an entire group of people. Cause you know, it's the short stories. We're getting these, these points of view, points of view, points of view. And in the last one, mm-hmm. like a, a lot of points of view uh, as like a, a chaotic <laughs> energy, like enveloped yeah. uh, several people's lives over one weekend in, in the last story. Um, and I, I think that reality is what makes this compelling even as it's tragic and sad and depressing and uh and you don't feel good for these people uh after you read it but you do still feel like this is some people's existence you know this kind of pervasive Mm -hmm. uh hopelessness uh is is what eisner saw in so much of the community that was around him when he's doing this and uh because of the the timelessness of it you you feel like the that fear where like there are people out there with this right now yeah he's trying to shine a light on i mean it's it's weird because it's hopeless but he's he's not he's not excusing anyone's bad behavior he's trying to shine a light on the fact that there are people where this is their reality Mm -hmm. and i know because i grew up that way like that's what he's saying he's saying this is my this and he he's very adamant that again these are stories that happened. I fictionalized them a little bit. He He's very adamant about that in the text of the actual story. And I think that's the point. Mm-hmm. The point isn't to, you know, it's a graphic novel. It's supposed to be thinky literature. And it's to make you think about things that you don't necessarily have to feel good about. Mm-hmm. Oh, Mav, when we just like we were talking about this and I'm like, ah, maybe we should just do the first two stories because uh, it's, yeah. it's a little too hard to <laughs> talk in depth on the on the last the last two general trigger warnings oh. for the if you decide to read the book and you're going to read the last t- the the last two in particular are heavy. Um, they have issues with rape. They have issues with sexual consent and sexual violence and and, and so suicide. Know that. And- yeah. And yeah. Oh, yeah. And know that when you're going mm-hmm. into them, know that these are not good um everything that we've said like these are people who have no hope and they're and and everyone sucks Mm -hmm. (laughs) like every every, like every everyone is a bad person in some way like they're frim is by far i think the nicest protagonist in the book and and he becomes (laughs) a slumlord and he's not great (laughs) (laughs) yeah right right so so like so so know that when you're reading the rest of the book you're gonna be like oh okay I just there's I mean, without spoilers, but also there are certainly trigger warnings. It's not light mm-hmm. reading. This is heavy, heavy stuff that is dark. But even with those warnings, 
very good. I've taught this in classes like three mm -hmm. times. So I, <laughs> I mean, it's it's really really good. Yeah, but, but when we decided hard. to like cut out basically half of a contract with God and other tenement stories, part of me was like, are we going to have enough to talk about? And I feel like we could just keep going talking about like Will Eisner, yeah. his art, his legacy, these stories themselves. We could do a, yeah, we could do six hours on the first yeah. story easily. <laughs> There's so many little. Details. I, I, I said to you in a message before. Like, I, I mean, uh, on the one hand, I'm worried we might go a little short. On the other hand, I know I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about rain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is so it's so pretty it's i mean it is it is such a pretty book which sounds weird to say given the darkness mm -hmm. of it but it is so beautifully rendered um that makes you realize and that's why they named the award after yeah. him <laughs> he is so uh -huh. good he is he is such an impressive storyteller in a way that is you know, we, we tend to, as as comic fans and scholars, we tend to talk about, well, the gold standard is Kirby. And that becomes what a thing that people say. And it's not that that's wrong. It's that maybe you, they didn't you a little space on that pedestal, for what, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because there because there's a lot going on here that is just so fascinating to look mm -hmm. at. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you, Mav, for joining us. Thank you, listeners, Absolutely. for downloading this episode. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Mav, is there anything you would like to plug? Uh, sure. You can listen to me every week. Uh, in a perfect world, I'm on every podcast every week. Um, I am regularly on both of my shows, Gosh Golly Wow!, at, um, which is a comic book that takes a weekly dive into the comic book series Excalibur for 126 plus weeks where we are just going through and reading the entire series. And and we're to, we're, we've recently at time of recording gotten back to um, issues that I like because there's a dark period in Excalibur where there's a lot that I just don't care for. Um, and so I always I almost feel bad for our listeners where where there's a lot of me saying, trust me, it's going to get better. And we're to the point where it's getting better. So so um, so listen to our show. I, I think we were entertaining and informative even during the parts where I didn't like it. But there were a lot of books that like I just like I'm, I'm reading this because it's the format of the show. Yeah. And then Excalibur <laughs> is just such a fascinating artifact of 90s comic book storytelling. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and and when I say and that, the, that's what you say yeah. when there's like there's good and bad. <laughs> it's a fascinating yeah, artifact. Good and bad. <laughs> yeah, and we're we're to the point where we're getting back to good. So I'm I'm happy and stoked about that. And then my other show is uh, uh well actually you've been on both shows, but you've only been on GGW the once. Um, you've several times been on Vox Pop, uh, the Vox Popcast V O X P O P C A S T uh dot com where we uh every week we tackle a different pop culture topic and it can vary it can be about a book it can be about a movie it can be about the general con concept of something like you know love and cinema capitalism and media a lot of you know, the uh um, the special episodes that we do after we've done a you know a comic book a tv show a movie and a, and a novel mm -hmm. feel like they could just go be any episode of the vox popcast <laughs> so like we'll do like yeah. a storytelling in uh in role-playing games is one that we're gonna be doing soon yeah. and that that could just be a, a vox popcast episode and and it has been yeah. in fact <laughs> so <laughs> we have we have done that and that and that is that's that's how our show is our show is usually not about a very specific text and then every once in a while it is and then 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 
on those are the shows where we're like, yeah, we're just we're just doing the protagonist like we did <laughs> Under the Cherry Moon, um, one of my favorite movies we did recently. And it's like, yeah, we're just doing an episode of, of Joe's mm-hmm. show. That's that's fine. Um, but, and also we 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 play this great game where we draft movies for a box office every year that everybody should check out that you might <laughs> find familiar. <laughs> you say so. in an ideal world, uh, you're on every podcast every week. In an ideal world, every podcast steals an idea from the protagonist podcast in my mind. Like I, I want all these weird ideas that we do uh, to just kind of keep spreading out like a, like a contagious virus <laughs> through awesome. the podcast world. <laughs> I'm glad you said that. So tune in next week when I'm going to like, you know, make up uh, Halloween movies <laughs> based on <laughs> based on random yeah. <laughs> Uh Well, thank you, Mav. And listeners, please check out his podcast. Uh, thank you again for listening to this one. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. That it's front here. Let me just see uh, mm-hmm. if there's a quick uh, before I ruin this for an entire episode. <laughs> <laughs>